Good evening, everyone. I'd like to welcome you into our Wednesday night devotional time. And uh, we're going to be studying, if you would go ahead and open a Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be studying from there uh, to begin with tonight. And uh, that's where we'll take the, the major part of our, uh, our thought for the evening. Looking forward to and excited about the idea that uh, we are going to be able to be together again on Sunday and uh, excited about that. Hope you're looking forward to that and planning to be here with us. Uh, not sure exactly how that's all going to go, but uh, that will be a, certainly a, a good thing for us to be able to be together again. Uh, so uh, look forward to that and be in prayer about that. Good to see you tonight. Well, see you in one form. Good for you to see me, I guess, and uh, thankful that we have this opportunity to study some more uh, and think about something that I think will be relevant to you. We spoke last week about uh, the idea of how Jesus, as he was preparing his disciples for the time when he was going to leave them, uh, pictured their relationship as a vine and the branches. And I want to read a text that you may think is completely different, and in some ways what we're going to talk about is completely different. Yet, we learn here, just like we did last week, something about ourselves. And that is the thought that I want to trace for a few minutes tonight. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18. Paul writes, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So Paul has a course of action he wants for the Corinthians. He wants them to flee sexual immorality, verse 18 there. And yet he gives a series of reasons why, and there are things that are a lot deeper than it's wrong. That's not the only argument he's going to make. But really the heart of what he says here in verses 19 and 20 is flee sexual immorality because you are a temple. You are a temple. And that thought gripped me because a temple is something that we don't have a lot of experience with. It would have been very familiar to Paul's audience, both Jew and Gentile, what a temple was and what a temple meant. So when he throws the word temple out there, it means a lot more to them than it probably does to us. In the world of ancient Greece, the world of Corinth, the, the people to whom he's writing, every town would have its temples. And temples in their time were places of worship and humility and service. They were places where gods would be prayed to and honored. They were places where meals would be had, sometimes even relations with prostitutes in honor of their gods. It was a place of great festivals, but also uh, great uh, sacredness, holiness. That's the Gentile world. Now, in the world of the ancient Jew, there is one temple... It's the temple in Jerusalem where God's glory dwelt. And you notice I have a picture up. This is a, a model of uh, one of the iterations of the temple in Jerusalem. And for the Jew, the temple was sacred ground. That is where God's glory dwelt. It's the only place where sacrifices were to be offered. It's the place where God put his name. It's the place where three times a year Israelite males were expected to travel for the special feasts. To the Jew, it is the place where, you remember in the book of Acts, when they are afraid that Paul has brought a Gentile into the wrong court of the temple, they're ready to kill him for defiling the temple. It's a place where blood still ran hot from the fact that Antiochus Epiphanes had defiled the temple centuries earlier. That's the temple. So whether you're Jew or you're Greek, the concept of a temple held tremendous emotional power. It is both a symbolic thing and an actual place. Many of his readers had been to temples and all of them knew what they meant. 
But we struggle with this because we just don't have a lot of experience with sacred things in our culture. Everything in America is so new. We're not really used to the ancient. And everything in our nation is about function or our own short history. Everything in our nation is subject to critique. There is very little that I could think of that is even remotely like the concept of a temple. And so that means that we may miss the import of this statement that he says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a temple. So I just want to think with you about that idea and trace through some thoughts both here and throughout the New Testament to help us flesh out what it means that you and I are temples and how we think of ourselves that way. First thing I want to say is that a temple is where God lives. So in this text, the focus is on sexual immorality, as we've already said. And and look at how Paul addresses that. In verse 18, he says, Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he explains why that's a sin against your own body and why that's significant. He says, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So it involves peculiarly the body, and Paul says, I want you to think differently about your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the sense, he says, in which God lives in us. So we are a temple because God lives in us. And he wants us to know in the clearest possible terms that the Spirit is within our bodies. He wants us to think of our bodies as housing God's spirit. And that's confusing because the spirit is a spirit being and our bodies are physical things. I think, though, what Paul is doing is is not getting hung up on the technicalities of that or the mechanics of that. He is saying you need to think about what God has given you when he has given you the Holy Spirit. And then you need to think about the change in ownership that that reflects. He says there in verse 20, you were bought with a price. Verse 19, you are not your own, so glorify God in your body. Things have changed, so your body is no longer yours, and that's reflected in the fact that God has given us of His Spirit. Things have changed, and now we need to live out that change. You are a temple, so live as if you're a temple. God is dwelling in you, so live as if God is dwelling in you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, so live as if your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's start by saying that this is a revolutionary idea. I said earlier that the Jews believed that God, the true God, dwelt in one place. He dwelt in Jerusalem, and it is Jesus who changes that, or at least signals that that's going to change. This is in John chapter 4. I also mentioned this, uh, the daily devotional tomorrow will have the same idea in it. But in John 4, 21 and 23, he is talking to the woman at the well who has asked him a question about, should we worship in Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worship, or in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, meaning Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So He says specifically, the time is coming when you're not going to worship here or there. And instead, he says, the true worshipers will worship not in a certain place, but in a certain way, in spirit and truth, true worshipers. In fact, Jesus paints his whole mission. He says, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I think you can read a lot of the Gospel of John as Jesus fulfilling God's mission to collect true worshipers. 
Where are they? And these become the believers, the first disciples. They are the people who want to worship God, not just in a place, but in a new way, in spirit and truth. But what Jesus is signaling here is that God is planning to move away from symbolically dwelling only in the temple. The temple, we might say, is going mobile. Now the temple is going to be wherever true worshipers, spirit and truth worshipers are. So if Jesus signals that earlier, then it kind of is brought to completion by what Paul says, that maybe the way that we become the temple, and it's no longer about Jerusalem, has to do with God giving his spirit and God living in his people through his spirit. Let's go to Acts chapter 17. Not only does that apply to the Jewish idea of what temple is, but here in Acts 17... Paul is going to address the Gentile idea of temple and explain how that doesn't fit Jehovah God either. Acts chapter 17. So in in Acts 17, Paul is invited to speak on the Areopagus in the city of Athens. And uh, just a little geographical note here. He is standing on... The Areopagus is a giant rock, but it stands in the shadow of the great Acropolis, the, the hill atop Athens where sits the Parthenon and several other temples in ancient times. And so when you're sitting on the Acropolis, I mean on the Areopagus, you can look up and see the Acropolis. You could see the Parthenon. You could see all of these temples. And I think that's the reason Paul refers to them the way he does, as he stands there and he gestures toward these temples. And he says this, Acts 17, 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples, made by man. I think he could gesture here and say, like that, like what you guys have. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul says specifically, God does not live in temples made by man. This is not where God lives. And remember Solomon said something similar. When Solomon dedicates the temple, he says, the heaven and the highest heavens could not contain you, how much less this house that I have built. But where does God dwell? If he doesn't live in these temples, and and the Greek world had temples everywhere in every city, where does he live? Well, Paul specifies in verse 27, he is not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. He is everywhere. He is all around us. But Paul does not say here, stresses in 1 Corinthians 6, but not here, is that God sends his spirit to indwell those who put their faith in Jesus so that an even closer, even more intimate bond is formed. God no longer lives in temples, he is saying. Instead, God is near you. And in fact, God can be in you in that sense. So I want you to see that movement away from God as only dwelling in certain holy buildings to God dwelling in certain people. And so now Paul says... God lives in you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So don't bring garbage into God's house. Flee sexual immorality. You can't live this way if the Spirit is in you. I want to say one more thing before we leave this, though, because this needs to be said. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 
it is not just that we are God's temple as individual disciples, but Scripture also, the New Testament also specifies that all of us, as the church, the, the people of God, are the temple in the singular form. We're not just a group of temples, but instead we together have an identity as God's temple. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. That you in verse 16 is a plural. We would say, y'all. And that's what he's saying. Y'all are God's temple, all of you together. Now, he's not saying that this is about a church building. He's not saying this is about an organization. He is saying the people of God together are also the place in which God lives and dwells. And again, he's going to have some applications of what that means. If God lives in you as a group, there's some things you don't do. And there are some things you definitely will do. So let's move on to that. If this is God's house, then the next step of that is that there are some things that we need to clean up. So if you are a temple, one of the features of a temple is that a temple is holy. A temple is holy, of course, because God lives there. That's sort of axiomatic. There are certain places that are holy places, sacred ground. And I want you to take a moment with that picture. There are places where we feel like we should take our hats off. There are people we feel like we should call them sir. There are flags, gravestones, books that we label as holy, songs that we think we should treat with respect. All of those things are rolled into the picture of these are things that are connected with something I should show respect for. That's what a temple is. A temple is a place where that happens. But remember, we've moved away from place toward the idea of people. So a temple takes all of those ideas, rolls them into one. This is not an ordinary place. It is holy. God is here. But that holiness has to be preserved and maintained. And so we need to ask the question, if we are a temple and we are holy, how do we maintain the holiness? And I want to show you a couple of answers that the New Testament gives to that question. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, if we're just talking about on the individual level how our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, well, this is a pretty straightforward answer. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 15, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the, the Corinthians seem to think that it's acceptable to visit prostitutes. Maybe we're even talking about prostitutes in the idol temples. But when he addresses that, he doesn't just say, well, that's wrong or that's gross or just stop doing it. He says that the reason why this is so inappropriate is because something has happened between you and God that this now violates. He starts by saying, your bodies are members of Christ. There in verse 15. And then he says, you're already joined to the Lord. Verse 17. And then he says, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, verse 19. And then he says, the whole point of maintaining holiness and being a temple is so that you can glorify God in your body, verse 20. 
So he is saying, the reason your behavior should change is because what God has done to you has changed you. God has made you holy. Now you keep that temple holy. So if my body is a temple, I have to keep it pure. I stay away from sin. I consider my body his property and not my own. I maintain purity. And there are some things that I have to run away from. That's what verse 18 says, flee sexual immorality. Some things are just inappropriate in a temple. If this is where God lives, this is no longer an appropriate behavior or an appropriate word or an appropriate thought for me. Then, if we can accept that idea that that we individually have a holiness obligation, then when we collectively think of ourselves as the temple of God, then there are some additional ideas of what it means to remain holy. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 3, where we just were. I mentioned that in 1 Corinthians 3, it is the corporate picture. Y'all are the temple of God. Well, if we are God's temple in this text, then we remain holy uh, by preserving unity. Sorry, I forgot to make the purity point there. Uh, But we remain holy by preserving unity. So in 1 Corinthians' first four chapters, he is talking about how there is division in the church at Corinth. I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos. And he, he is talking about in this chapter the danger that that poses to the, whole, the unity of the whole body. And then in that context, he says in verse 16, Do you not know that you're a God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Destroying God's temple, destroying God's people. How do we do that? How do we destroy the people of God? We divide. And he says that specifically in verse 3 and 4, where there's jealousy and strife, there are divisions among you. They are behaving childishly childishly and dividing. So in order to help them see how serious this is, Paul says, don't you know you're the temple? And all that picture, remember how the Jews felt about the temple. I mentioned a moment ago, They're ready to kill Paul when they think Paul has defiled it. There is a warning that archaeologists have found at the gates of the inner court of the temple in Jerusalem. It read, No alien may enter within the barrier and wall around the temple. Whoever is caught violating this is alone responsible for the death which follows. They are serious about keeping the temple holy. And Paul says... If you destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. So if people are that concerned about a physical structure where God says he doesn't live anymore, how much more is God going to be concerned about the people he has sanctified and lives in who someone then comes, threatens, and tries to destroy? So he says, quit separating, quit looking down on one another. Don't you know how serious this is? That you be one? Because God wants to live in you. Turn the page over to Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, he uses this picture of a a temple to describe the group. Ephesians 2 and verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's talking mainly to the Gentiles here in the church. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
So we are joined together, being built together, and he is picturing Jew and Gentile together. We are a temple, and that means that one of our foremost goals is to be unified. We're trying to find common ground in which we can join together and work together and grow together and live together and love each other and glorify God together. There will always be opportunities to divide. There will always be differences of opinion and differences that come from our backgrounds. And always we're going to have opportunities to say, let's get mad at each other and go our separate ways. But we glorify God when we join together and remain unified. We sing a song sometimes, a sanctuary song. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. And in one of those verses, uh, we, we sing, I, I didn't write it down, so I'm going from memory here, which is always a dangerous prospect. Uh, Lord, teach your children to stop the fighting and start uniting all as one. And I, I think it's particularly fitting to think of how we as God's people need to find peace and unity together. And in doing so, we become a sanctuary, a place where God dwells and God is honored because he, other people can see our unity and he can live in us because we keep his ground holy. The other thing I want to say about uh, holiness in the temple is the idea of rejecting evil influences. Uh, I want you to look at this with me in 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6, where the temple picture is used again. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14. And I want you to notice as you go through this how Paul again conjures up the, issue, the, the picture of the temple. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I want you to notice the connection there. We are the temple of God. There is holiness that we have to bring to completion. And part of that is about influences. He is talking about being unequally yoked together with unbelievers where there is an undue influence that some people are exerting on us when they are not following after Christ the way we are. And he says specifically, I mean, look how extended the quotation is beginning in verse 16 all the way down to verse 18 where he specifies, go out, be separate, touch no unclean thing, that there has to be a separation between the people of God and those who are unbelievers or those who are wicked. That's what holiness means. So in this context... There is a group of people in Corinth who are opposed to Paul and who are undermining Paul's influence in the group. And Paul wants them to distance themselves from that. Be careful who your bedfellows are because they're influencing you away from good things. That also happened, by the way, to the Galatians where there was a group that came in and tried to sow discord after Paul had taught them. And Paul has a similar reaction there. You have to be careful about those you listen to. And so in the same way, when we think about ourselves, the group of Christians... As a temple, we have to ask ourselves, who is allowed to have influence in the temple of God? 
what is going to be the diet of the people of God. If we are going to remain holy, then there have to be some decisions made about things that are allowed and things that are prohibited just to maintain holiness. And those are conversations we should always be having as we think about what's appropriate and who is allowed to, to present those things and bring those ideas in. All right, the third thing I want to say about the idea that you're a temple is that a temple is a place of worship. Now, this one is not controversial in just that statement, but when you apply it to the idea of how we as individuals and we as a group are the temple of God, well, that changes some things about the way we think about worship. Temples were a place where people would go when they were ready to call on their God, ready to offer something to their God. They would talk to him there and offer sacrifices there. And scripture says that we are now places of worship. Whether you talk about us in our physical bodies or whether you talk about us as a group, a people, not a building, not a place, we are now the place. And wherever we are becomes a place of worship. That's why Paul tells us to glorify God in our bodies. Again, glorify God as that picture of worship in a temple that we've seen several times already. Go with me to Romans chapter 12, where Paul uses this picture to talk about how we are both the priest offering the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself. Romans 12 and verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think this passage would probably have, uh, would resonate more with people in ancient times than us because we don't know, the idea of presenting your bodies is a little different than what we think of. Uh, ancient worshipers knew when you came to a God, you came to present something, to offer something to that God. You would come with an animal. Maybe you would come with money to buy an animal and then you would bring the animal in, but you had something to offer. And in this picture, Paul says, you don't come and offer something else. You come and offer yourself. You present your body as a living sacrifice. That is, it's not a life that's taken once and then it's over. It is instead a life that is continually offered, and that is your body. We lay our bodies to God's disposal, and our worship in that way is ongoing. We have forfeited our rights to ourselves. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. And now what we do is honor God in our bodies and the decisions that we make about how we use our bodies now belong to him. We honor God with our minds. He says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind because we reject the worldly way of thinking. We seek out higher ways of thinking. We talk to God. We serve for God. We work for God. We love others for God. And we present ourselves. We lay ourselves down at his feet and say, we offer ourselves for worship. All of this is a living sacrifice so that I become the place. No longer is this about going to a certain place and offering something else. It is instead about God being where I am and me offering who I am and what I have to him. Sometimes in the New Testament that is pictured as a sacrifice. I am well supplied, this is Philippians 4.18, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. 
you'll recognize the Old Testament language there from the idea of a fragrant offering and the idea of acceptable and pleasing to God. Sometimes that is pictured as an aroma that goes up to God that pleases him. He likes the smell of what we're offering. Not that the burning and the actual smell is what God likes, but the idea that his people are giving something in honor of him. And here Paul says, you gave me something and God is honored. It was a sacrifice that you made and God is pleased. Hebrews 13 takes that same sacrifice picture. He says, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So you've got the idea of sacrifice of praise to God and sacrifice of doing good and sharing what you have. And I want you to notice again, he says, it is pleasing to God. God sees what we're offering. And he says, I am pleased with this worship. We have lost in modern America the picture of worship as us giving something. And instead, we have put in its place the idea that worship is about me getting something. We'll even say that. I didn't get anything out of the service. That is not the way the Bible portrays worship. Worship is where we offer. Worship is where we give up. Worship is where we show honor. Worship is where we humble ourselves. And now, Scripture says, we are the place of worship. So that acts like these, where I surrender my body to God's will, acts like this, where I give someone what is mine so that they can have enough, acts like these, where I sacrifice by praising to God or I share what I have, these are sacrifices that are part of my worship. I continually offer those things. And I don't need it to be Sunday morning before I ask the question, does God want this? I don't need to be in a certain place to know that God sees and is pleased with my worship. I become the place of worship because God lives in me. Go with me to 1 Peter 2. There's one more passage I want to show you here before we're done for our time tonight. 1 Peter 2. And Peter, in, he talks about here our collective templehood. I, I wrote that word templehood and, and uh, my word processor flagged it as not being an actual word. But boy, it sounds like a word, right? It sounds wordish, uh, templehood. But our collective templehood, that we together are a temple, like we've read already. And I want you to see how that relates to the idea of, of being a place of worship. 1 Peter 2 and verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." The words here are plural. 
Y'all are being built up. Verse 5. I know that sounds weird to talk like the Bible says y'all. You yourselves, verse 5, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So as we each individually offer our worship, sometimes we also come together and join together and make a chorus out of isolated voices and we blend our worship and our praise to God and we worship together. And here Peter says, you are the new Levites. You are the new Israel. You are God's holy nation, God's royal priesthood. And part of that worship in verse 9 is that we declare what God has done for us. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every day we live in freedom and peace and forgiveness. And every day we have the opportunity to tell other people about it. So what I want you to see here is that worship in this text is not only what happens in this building. It's not only what happens on a Sunday. We become the place of worship, both individually and as a group, whether assembled or distant. We are God's people and God lives in us. And I want us to think about how when God is alive in us, it remakes every place that we are into a place of worship. That we can worship God and give sacrifices and acceptable praise to God when we're in our cars and we're in our homes and when we're at our workplaces, when we're at restaurants, if they're ever open again, when wherever we are, we can worship God in those places. And God sees and God knows. And we don't have to say, well, it doesn't count. Because it counts to God. You are the temple of God. God is in us and God is glorified by us and through us. And if we are a temple, our entire lives are reshaped as opportunities for worship. We don't have to go somewhere to do it. We can worship wherever we are. So, a few simple questions. Do you believe that God is living in you? Is your life holy? Is there something that you know is inconsistent with God living in you? Are you promoting the unity and peace of this group? Of Christians generally? Are there evil influences that you know about or perhaps that you're even bringing that need to be removed? Can you say you are pure? Those are the questions that these thoughts raise for me. And then the last question is, what what sacrifices, what worship are you offering to God? Have you offered today? And are you offering regularly? I pray that you'll think about that and remember Take with you the picture that you are a temple of God. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much for this time that you've granted us to be able to open your word together and think serious thoughts that you have communicated to us about your will for us and all that you've done for us. Father, we are so grateful because you have bought us out of our sins and given us hope. You have redeemed us and given our lives purpose. You've taught us about who we are. You've taught us about where we're headed. And we are thankful, Father. Father, we are looking forward to the time when we can gather together and be together in person as we are in spirit at this time. And Father, we ask your blessings on that situation and the the plans that we have made. 
Father, we are especially thoughtful about the idea that you are dwelling in us, that you want our worship, you want our purity, that you want to bless us and be pleased with us and be glorified through us. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to live up to this awesome blessing. And we pray that you'll help us to make choices to get rid of the things that are keeping you from us and us from you. Father, we ask your blessings on those who are suffering and struggling. We ask your blessings on those who are sick, those who are weak, and those who have just been through surgeries. Father, we pray that you'll continue to bless all of your people and watch over us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.